bandwidth for the Weird Things podcast provided by Wired Tree. For sites of any size and world-class customer service, head on over to wiredtree.com. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Weird Things. I'm Andrew Mean, joined by Justin Robert Young. Hello. Mr. Brian Brushwood. Yo ho, yo ho, yo ho. Mr. Bryce Castillo. Ho, ho, ho. Oh, wait, one of those was timely. Yeah. Yeah, it's Pirate Day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, got some bad news. Uh, if you've been following what's going on with Arecibo, the telescope that's been radio telescope that's been legendary, it's been, you know, part of doing amazing research and has been around for decades doing cool stuff you know you saw it in the movie contact also in goldeneye where it turned out to be it was a you know secret you know space weapon etc but actually like legit telescope in puerto rico which has done some incredible credible research over the years um its structure had been going under a lot of stress and trying to maintain it had been difficult and a week or so ago there was a concern that the whole telescope may collapse and that happened. That central thing you're looking for right there in the center is, weighs about 900,000 pounds. So it's a pretty heavy thing. There are three support towers, two, towers to it. They've tried to sort of shore it up however they could, but they had a feeling that the cables they had attached to it oh! turned out not to be as strong as they thought. Oh, and- my God. It's all falling apart. Jeez, it did. Yeah. Look at it. Yeah, and there's a uh, drone footage too showing this as it collapses, and it's 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 kind of a big setback because uh, there is a larger telescope in China. They have a larger space telescope, but this is the world's largest was the world's largest radar telescope, which you know had the ability to be able to distance objects into different things. That so far we don't really have that capability. It would be one of the telescopes you'd want to use if something was getting close did did i hear right I, I i have heard on the radio that it was originally intended as a radio transmitter to bounce stuff off the ionosphere and then they're all like oh wait you know what else we can bounce stuff off of planets and uh and then out to the stars they they began to look um that's that's unreliable uh because it's what i'm re- remembering hearing there may have been an instrument or it may have been like the radar aspect of it might have been that might the radar telescope function may have been something related to that but to my knowledge it was a space telescope from the start but there are other telescopes there there are other instruments there too and it might have started as a facility very much for just that was bouncing stuff around so you know why would not surprise me if there was some aspect that was yeah, if I'm remembering correctly, it was it was specifically like uh, for you wanted it near the equator in American friendly military territory. Um, uh, yeah, man, I, I should really uh, know things before I open my mouth. Uh, <laughs> it's weird things. It's not no things. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so uh, this 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 collapsing, like I guess there's there's no real sense of putting it back together or building a replacement. Like, uh, probably not putting it back together. Probably from this point forward, you've got to take it apart. The next steps would be, uh, it's funding. It's a matter of, you know, finding the money to, to build this, you know, to rebuild. And that takes, you know, that it was national science foundation project. 
which takes years and years and years to get stuff funding. So unless some, you know, private funder wanted to step forward and to make that happen. And I guess also like they selected know. this spot because, you know, it's a, a, you know, kind of a nice hemispherical. It was the right shape. It looked vaguely like a volcano, but wasn't. And um, uh, my guess is if what you want is another ta space telescope, there are many other locations that probably nowadays make more sense than to rebuild on that same spot. Yeah, it was a sinkhole, as you pointed out, and that made it kind of this nice thing because you didn't really have to excavate a lot of material to be able to pull it out of there. I don't know, really. The remoteness was a key, too, is because you're not going to get a lot of interference where it is. I think there's probably a lot of other locations where you could build this. Certainly, it's a source of pride for the people in you know Puerto Rico as far as this. It was a great you know center for science and doing really good research. You know, It'd be nice to see something be rebuilt there to do this. And uh, by the way, uh, just enough, you know, the university that had been managing it currently was UCF. Oh, look at that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Fell apart on the Night's Watch. So the yeah, University ah, of Central Florida. Geez. Oh, it wouldn't be the first time that something from UCF collapsed in the middle of the night. <laughs> so uh, it is it is a bit hard to watch this thing happen. And But, you know, this is a... This this facility has had a tremendous amount of history to it, and it's one of these things where one of the things is, you know, it's frustrating, but over time, you know, uh, it's done a lot of amazing research. So there's that, but who knows? Who knows so what so when it was, we were reading on the screen there that it was too dangerous to repair is, is part of the idea mm -hmm. that, like, you don't want to try to fix it and then break it, and you just rather see it break, or was it just, there's just no way that anybody... Like, with any tool could make it better. Uh, as I understand it, one of the cables snapped, and then at that point, it's like this thing could go at any moment. And so once it became yeah. a loaded, you know, mousetrap, then it's just like, yeah, you know. It snapped, and also it snapped below the threshold they thought it would snap. That was one of the things that was concerning was they uh... realized these cables were not as strong as they had thought. And they show the point at which one of the cables had snapped in earthquake data, where there's an earthquake in, um, let's say, the Dominican Republic or somewhere else like this. And you can follow the shockwave and see when all of a sudden this cable snapped in the telescope there, which is another one of these factors between wind, everything else. But this thing lasted like, you know, like 50 years. So, I mean, this thing was around before we were born. So. Yeah, you know, it's, it's had a pretty. It's also uh, one, one of the go. very few uh, radio telescopes, possibly the only, to ever transmit a selfie of itself, because it was from Arecibo that we sent the uh, message to space, including a crude line art drawing of the Arecibo uh, telescope. <laughs> yeah, there's the uh, like, yeah, uh, you talk, yeah, like the ASCII sort of people, and then like when they did like like Pioneer Voyage, where we put the gold plate on there with the man and the woman. You know, you're like, was there a debate over how big stuff should be? <laughs> <laughs> we gotta, we don't want to intimidate them, but we don't want to, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Uh, but you know, the the upside is it it sort of brings attention back to, hey, these things are real, these things are useful, and if people are saying, hey, how useful are they? I don't know. Let's talk about 2020 SO. What's 2020 SO? He says coyly, uh, 2020 SO, that was the object we saw hurtling towards the Earth. We're using our telescopes. We look up there. We see this faint object coming towards the Earth. 
and we're like, Ooh, well, let's, let's, let's measure this. And there are things in space that come at us and we can this and figure out what it is. Thankfully, there are astronomers who are able to do math and to look at this and they charted the trajectory of 2020 SO and said, okay, what is this object? It seems really small and kind of faint, kind of hard to figure out where to come from. I'm like, huh, you know what? This may have come closer to the Earth before, like it's some sort of weird orbital pattern. NASA has confirmed the 2020 SO, this rocket, this the space, this space object, is in fact, could be <laughs> the Centaur what? upper stage booster from a 1966 Surveyor 2 mission to the moon. Holy cow. What? That's crazy. I mean, I guess it's, you know, it's got to be out there somewhere. Yeah. So we had a booster, which was used to sort of try to push this thing towards the moon. And then I guess, you know, there was a malfunction. This is back in 1966. A couple of years later, a lot more moon related stuff happened. And we tend to forget about these things <laughs> in the public conscious. And I think it's like, I'm out of here, guys. <laughs> you know, and did a swing around and people were like, hey, what's this? And pull it up. And it's one of these objects that we I don't think we've been tracking. Oh, and I guess I guess that there's no, uh, I wonder, I wonder how ubiquitous space travel would have to become before it would even be worth the effort to lean over and pick up something like that. Uh, I guess at most you would put it in a museum. I, w I can't imagine there's much scientific value to, to this old engine. Well, I think there could be, so this is like, they say like they, they figured out by trying to, they looked at, uh, basically the spectrometer and saw that it looked like it was made of 301 steel or close to it. Certainly being able to look at an object like that, that's been in space for 50 years and to see the impact on it, to see what's happened to its structure, to see, you know, how, how many impacts of how pitted is it? Because it was going on a different pattern than things that we've had just in regular orbit. So that's what makes it interesting is that this has been going on a much wider orbital path. So there could be, the problem is just, it's like, you know, however much energy it took to get, put it there you're going to need that much energy to get to there and then, you know, to try to recover plus that. Yeah. Which is, you know, hard. Um, man, I wonder, uh, uh, this is kind of a separate dire direction, but, but, you know, we, uh, one of the perennial stories we talk about on weird things is the increasing amount of space junk. Uh, it just occurred to me that, that this engine, if, if that's what it turns out to be, should we retrieve it would be sort of an accidental space probe in that it would have been exposed to, certain things that we'd be able to intuit like, oh my gosh, more or less cosmic radiation based on what we're seeing here. Or like you said, the pitting and all that stuff. Uh, I almost wonder, I wonder if in our lifetime, we're going to see a garbage collection uh, initiative with, with the side benefit of being able to sort of track uh, and, 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 and glean information from collecting a bunch of space debris in low earth or orbit. Maybe. And, and just a side note, I just saw here, one of the reasons they're able to figure out what it was is there was a suspicion it might be the Centaur booster. They aimed a telescope at another Centaur booster that we know that we've been tracking the orbit of and looked at that to see what what it looked like on the spectrometer to see what the, the you know, the color patterns or the composition. And they said, OK, this is what it looks like at this point. And then they aimed it back at the other one. Like, yeah, it seems to be a match. Yeah, that's great. That's very cool. Yeah. So to the question about, yeah, I think that the the goal with, let's say, SpaceX with Starship and Blue Origin with what they're working on, once you have fully reusable, fully reusable and your cost is essentially fuel, and you're talking the price of a couple, you know, 
airplane flights around the world, which is not inconsequential, but it's a fraction of what we play, pay now for space exploration. Things like that start to become feasible. You know, then it comes into the you know the the, the rating, the capability, of the rocket cannot reach that orbit, cannot reach those patterns, but it's much much more realistic. You know, whereas now we're like, oh, are we going to spend half a billion dollars to go grab something? It's like, well, no, we want to put something up there. But when you're talking a fifty million dollar launch, a five million dollar launch, which Starship would make possible, which is just kind of mind blowing. It's so. also crazy to know that that is such a fascinating prehistory of our current space exploration that we we could put something that would stay in the air or stay in, stay in space for that long but not have tracked it right that that it's not mm -hmm. something that we were tracking like that's it just kind of a a, a, a it shows you how far we've grown yeah, they could on paper you could have an idea of a window of where it would go into, but then over years, you know, that would start to change. And and it's how many things that we track. Like I think you can go look online, you'll see objects in space right now. And some are even like like lug nuts and things like this. And one of the reasons the <laughs> space shuttle flew backwards, like or trap orbited backwards, that the first mission they went up there, the space shuttle came back down, they found like a pitting in the window. And realized, oh, the window's a vulnerable spot. We should have this thing file, you know, fly backwards. So if anything hits it, it hits at the rear of it. And you know, just as a safety precaution, because you get chips of paint hitting you at twenty-two thousand miles an hour, sting. Yeah, which is one of the scary things about a spacewalk. <laughs> uh, oh yeah. yeah. Well, you're no. not kidding. Yeah. So, gentlemen, you know what's no spacewalk? Uh, is this show? Well, yeah, no, it's not a walk in the space, as they say in our common vernacular. Uh, friends, patreon.com slash weird things is where you need to go to support this show. If you've never heard of Patreon, uh, well, well what, the, what the hell are you doing, man? It's a great site. It, it makes uh, dreams come true, quite literally. You uh, uh, can uh, take uh, some money, give it to us, and we will make sure that this show continues to come to you. You get a custom RSS feed. It's the only way to listen to any podcast. If any podcast that you know has a, a Patreon, get it just for the RSS feed. It is so, so, so valuable to make sure you get things a little bit earlier. Make sure you get all the stuff that you're already paying for uh, delivered right to the podcatcher of your choice. Yeah, head on over there, patreon.com slash weirdthings. So one of those things that like uh, one of these things that keeps kind of overachieving and you kind of forget and then all of a sudden they pop up and go, hey, I found out something kind of cool is Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. <laughs> and the, the gifts so, they keep on giving, man. Yeah. So apparently uh, the Voyager probe uh, basically just they think that it found Evident Voyager one, they think they found evidence of some sort of like shock wave at the outer limits of the solar system, basically where it's there's some effect where the the sun hits stuff and all of a sudden there's a generation of like a burst of electrons that appear at a place where they didn't think they would. And Voyager one is apparently able to observe this, and so it's a new phenomenon, kind of a new thing we didn't know was out there. And you know we're long ways away from thinking when we thought like space is just sort of empty. And yeah, this is a probe that launched in like. 1977. That's so remarkable that, that we're getting anything awesome. still from that. Yeah, it is 14 billion miles away. It's cool because when you start thinking about like, you know, it's still 
extremely far, 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 far away from our nearest, you know, solar system. But you're starting at the point where it's been out there so long and traveling so far, you can actually look at like a chart of how far away it is to like Alpha Centauri. You're not necessarily head in that direction and go like, oh, I can actually see. I can actually see how far we've gone on this chart. <laughs> Which unfortunately only makes the idea of humanity ever getting off this this uh, system off to another one seem like an even more daunting task because then all it took was entire lifetimes. <laughs> I would, yeah, I think think through the approach that we're looking at of just you know shooting fuel out the back, burning fuel and shooting out the back. Absolutely, you know. But I think that I'm I was skeptical. I'm less skeptical now of I've heard enough like and I think I talked about this briefly. I've heard enough smart people talk about how there are ways you could have warp drive without breaking causality, you know, causing time travel paradoxes and stuff would be be a limiting factor. And shortly short way short of that, like we've talked about the laser propulsion and systems like that. I'm more optimistic, and I'm optimistic now. We may we may find ways to you know not go fast in the speed of light, but bend space in a way that you arrive there effectively faster. And um, somebody mentioned the Alcubierre drive, which was one of the things that was proposed. The problem with the Alcubierre drive, this was this Miguel Alcubierre, a Mexican physicist, proposed this idea of how to like expand the space behind you and shorten the space in front of you. When he first wrote that paper, the, the one thing was, is you needed something called like, you know, like a, a negative energy or negative, you know, form of negative you know, matter that didn't quite exist. And you needed to fill up the entire universe. And that was the original problem. Like, well, this is a theoretical way in which you could build this system, but the problem have to have the entire universe worth of this form of matter or energy that doesn't exist. Since then, people have improved upon this. They've looked at this. They've looked, kept addressing it and look forward, you know, have kept modifying it. Now there are people who think that you could do this with a few kilograms Whoa. of a material. Mm. So a material that does not exist yet. And, but there are other people who think that you might be able to substitute other stuff because that's where it gets interesting. Is there are serious physicists who look at it, who don't get laughed at as much to say, hey, what about this? And it fits within relativity it fits within there because the idea is you're not making an object go faster than the speed of light you know from its point of view it's traveling at a regular distance you know the, the reason is there are objects you can go fast at the speed of light you just can't go slower and to go to the speed of light you need infinite amount of energy that's the sort of thing where we we put in those things like you can or you can't but effectively you can't in there but we have objects black holes and things and everything that sort of affects and warp space around it how would you use it to your advantage so might be. Yeah. Won't we? Uh, uh, just, a, just a couple of upgrade cycles away. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm sure it'll be in iOS 15. Well, it is. It's That's a thing when I started hearing, you know, people with actual PhDs and, you know, saying, no, there might be a way. No, you could do it like this without doing it. I'm like, oh, okay. Because, you know, my understanding had always been that anything a warp drive was effectively FTL and that would cause time travel. And I, I, I don't. The, the the equations start appearing it's like yeah look at this it's clear it's like yeah it's clear <laughs> obviously i think that one's smiling yeah. at me uh yeah. so that would be but that's one of these things we think about where as we move forward with ai and our understanding of things and technology and our ability to like understand how the universe works steven wolfram who did you know wolfram mathematica etc 
he has a neat talk with like Lexi Friedman where he talks about the whole idea of once you understand kind of the coding of the universe, you might find that there are other ways to do things. Which okay, I wonder. Go on. <laughs> well, everything, everything, as we know, everything we understand about our universe is our monkey brains trying to approximate and determine it, and then we find things where, like, you know, we've talked about before, like quantum physics is good at explaining certain things, relativity is good at explaining other things quantum physics when it gets to things like gravity not so much because it's a really good approximation of understanding it but there are these areas where it doesn't mm -hmm. and then we end up in things on a larger scale like with dark energy dark matter because we can observe a thing but we don't have a way to explain a thing yeah yeah uh, uh, uh thinking about the limitations of the human brain um uh, man, I forget the, uh, the, the place where I picked it up, but the metaphor of think of a windows desktop and imagine that's your only way to interact with a computer. You could come up with a set of rules that are consistent and reliable about how things move and what you click drag and all that stuff. And at the same time, that windows desktop bears absolutely no resemblance whatsoever. It in no way informs you about the underpinnings of how that, that CPU is running or what's inside the computer or, or any of that stuff. I, or, I say no, but maybe it would be implied insofar as you might intuit that there's some kind of hard drive structure based on, you know, looking at directories and whatnot. But, uh, but, but still, um, uh, the, the fact that our brains are really only wired to see uh, a very thin slice of the electromagnetic magnetic spectrum. The fact that, that, that we conceive of the world much like that, uh, that desktop is a, a real challenge. That's a great analogy. And that, yeah, that's, that's just, you think about how we invent things like calculus because we notice like, yeah, there's this relationship between this and this, and we really need a way to sort of quantify this. And then you develop a thing called calculus. All of a sudden you go, oh, I see this. Now I can predict what's going to happen when this thing happens here and this happens there. Uh, and that, you know, updated a lot, you know, of what happened as far as our understanding of how the world worked, because it gave us new tools to do that. And then we get into, you know, general relativity was this approach towards things that all of a sudden gave us another way to realize, oh, wait, here's some formulas. And that's kind of like the way the Alcubierre drive was determined was basically uh, you could kind of plug in any sort of values you want into the equations for relativity to figure things out. And so he just plugged in a bunch of different numbers and stuff to figure out how could you build a warp drive? And it's like, yeah, it works. You can do this. If you have this here <laughs> and this there, then sure. <laughs> so, sounds good to me. Um, Screw it. So the, here, how do you, how do you feel about the age of, let's say, we talked about before how Google had their their like their deep fold the the project to accelerate protein folding, which is exciting. We might start doing this with like the physical laws of the universe and applying systems to develop and think figure things out, but they might do it in ways that we really initially will be able to understand how they solved it, but later on, it'll just be like, oh, no, put a copper wire here and do this and spin around and say, my name's Chicken, and this happens. I mean, that's the crazy part is, I mean, already we live so much of our lives not understanding how anything happens. Um, uh, what's the analogy? Like, I can't explain to you 
how an iPhone is built, but I can explain to you how easy it is to use. Like uh, you touch the thing and move the thing <laughs> or whatever. And so likewise, if we get to a place where giant mega AI farms are able to conceive of increasingly more efficient ways uh, of, of physically warping space to make it easier to get to other planets, weirdly, we don't have to understand anything. We just have to know that it works. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, assuming we're not tearing apart the fabric of the universe, then yeah, sure, go ahead and physically mush together this amount of space so that it's a shorter trip. Why don't you just bring Alpha Centauri a little bit closer to me? Thanks, AIs. <laughs> That's one of the things I think about too. Like you just said, like bring Alpha Centauri close to me is our, you know, our, my monkey brain breaks down when I start to think about dimensions, when I start to think about the idea of higher dimensions, all of this, and you start reading, you know, brain BRA and E theory and the idea of, you know, how many dimensions there really are to space. Um, yeah. The fact that like after the Big Bang, all the physical laws of the universe weren't the same as now because you had so much energy, like at a million degrees, you know, a billion degrees, whatever the temperature is, things just fall apart, don't work the same way. Um, it's crazy. And, and it's based upon we test for a thing, we observe a thing, and we have this sort of thing to sort of explain it. Uh, it is... I, it's exciting to think that we'll never have all the answers. It's scary to think that we may have only just scratched the, the top of the layer of paint to all the answers. And beyond that, our brains are never going to be able to understand the rest of it. And there, there's kind of a weird comfort in that for me that when I think of the fact that we don't have to understand to enjoy the benefits of it, you know, like if the math works and, and we, you know, if the models suggest like, uh, for example, take how many things are theoretical? You know, I assume that for a long time, antimatter was purely theoretical. And then it's like, oh, we made some. And then uh, so if the math works out and it says, yeah, what you do is you, you, you pinch the edge of Alpha Centauri, you pinch the edge of the solar system. And you just, yeah, you just, you just make a little yeah, real thin, like just push those together. Now it's only a 20 mile trip. Um, Sure, you know, if the math, if the math works out, then also have the AIs figure out how to construct whatever, you know, crazy <laughs> theoretical matter is needed to do that. You know, there's a, there's a story there where the you know, AI have built these spaceships and stuff, and all they really are is virtual reality simulators. <laughs> and I mean, they're just hiding the other side of the moon. <laughs> I, to, to, to be it honest, is, what would the difference be, right? I mean, uh, yeah. all I know is that Wiley Coyote cartoons are going to be lit. <laughs> like if that's if that's where we're at like bending matter like oh dude wait till yeah. that dude gets the acme catalog in 30 years yeah uh and you know digging through some of this a couple things like did you know do you know you could make a black hole just using light um hold on let me parse that so i guess no 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 i'm i'm not understanding that because because uh if, if light is at its most generous, if you uh, take the particle theory, then it's by definition, the least massful type of mass conceivable. Um, walk me through this. this. This sounds crazy. Well, again, all, that, all you have to do is change your frame of reference to remember matter or energy. And if you have uh, light can have a tremendous amount of energy. So if you take a tremendous amount of light and focus it to one point, you can create a black hole because you're using that energy to warp space. Huh. Hmm. All right. I, th I think that's as far as either Justin and I have on that one. 
<laughs> yeah, well, it's it's a great one for anybody's curious. Go Google like uh, light, you know, create a black hole with light, or look for YouTube videos. And really eloquent speakers will show you with fancy diagrams and stuff like this. And like, oh, if you do this and da da da, and, and you're like me, like going, oh, okay, I guess you can do this now. <laughs> I'm going to tell Justin and Brian, and I'm not got anything else to offer because <laughs> this is just cool. Like I heard for the first time, I had maybe other people heard about this uh, dark fluid. Uh man. Uh, pardon? Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, I had that right that before back. I came down with COVID. I was gonna say. <laughs> so the idea is to explain both dark energy and dark matter into one theoretical framework. And we've talked about, you know, before if you look at when we look at galaxies forming their sort of whirlpool and holding together, it's like, man, there's something holding these things together that we can't count all of the matter. There's not enough stars there to be able to do this. And people thought maybe it's stars that are dark or whatever. Like, no, there should still be more energy. And then the idea that dark matter is the thing holding these things together. But then everything, all these galaxies are being pushed apart. And that's where the idea of this dark energy is this thing that's sort of pushing everything outwards. And then dark fluid is saying, no, it's both. It's uh, <sighs> imagine. Uh, man, it's like a, it's like a cosmic non-Newtonian fluid where it's just like uh, the same thing that surprises us as children on the beach is... In, in my reduced metaphor is happening on a cosmic scale. Yeah. Then there is dark flow. <laughs> okay. Uh, and it has to do with the velocity of galaxy clusters. So really, I think anybody wants to do a PhD here, just use the word dark and something cool afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> that is the fastest way to get aggregated by science blogs, right? Is just yeah. you know just, just make sure that really, your theory sounds like a, a Sith. That's all you really need to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's also like we're we're in a world where like murder hornets got like a six month run out of it when like I don't even know what they were or whether or not they were an actual problem, but people just like saying the word. Like the the the, the threshold to get coverage is really not all that high. Yeah. So it's, but it is, it's crazy. If anybody's curious, just go dive down like the, a, like the dark matter. Like, why did we come up with this? And it's not like a scientist are like, I want to make up something today. It's just, you know, we're looking at these galaxies. Like, how are they, why are they held? Why are they forming together? Why are they spinning? How are they holding together? There's not enough gas, not enough stuff that we can observe. There's gotta be something else there. And it's like, ah, I'm going to add a little a thing in the equation here called, you know, Dark matter. Great. Yeah. Now we've got dark matter. What is it? Don't know. Equation works. <laughs> you know, like, did, did you just brand the letter X? <laughs> like, like you just, you just you know, drew a circle around the part you don't know and gave it a name. It's like, yes. Try, try it in an argument next time. Did you eat all the cookies? Dark matter. What? <laughs> it makes sense. It makes complete sense. The cookies so, are here. Know. They're gone. Dark matter. Yeah, yeah, dark matter. I'm sorry. I'm not going to have to explain this to you one more time. <laughs> like it was dark matter. Uh, and and yeah, somebody put in there there be dragons and you know like you know perhaps the territory is the unknown terra incognita, you know, we would put that like yeah, there's something out here, like ships don't come back, whatever and eventually we'll fill in the data. Now we're a little more scientific about it. Like, is it really this green scale dragon you drew on the edge of the map? And like, well, maybe not that. Can you prove it's not? Yeah. 
We want to do picks. Yeah. Yeah. I got a, I, I got, I got a pick. So I turned uh, a friend of ours, Darren kitchen on to a little show that is coming back for a fifth season in a week. Uh, and that is the expanse. The expanse is good. I've really enjoyed having conversations with Darren about the expanse and it's made me very excited for the expanse. So just public service announcement. If you ain't never watched the expanse and you have Amazon prime, and you enjoy shows like uh, Star Trek and Battlestar Galactica and Game of Thrones. Well, just know that there's a show that tickles all of those parts of your brain just waiting for you. So they recently announced that there's only going to be one more season of The Expanse. And now I'm torn because I fell off around um, season midway through season three. And it's like, do I want to get back on the horse to get all the way caught up just to wait for that one more season? Or do I wait and then get to do the whole run up for that finale? Um, number one, I'll believe that it's their final season when Bezos says that he's done watching the show. Like, I mean, because <laughs> yeah. apparently it's like Bezos's favorite show. So it's like, as long if if they nail a cliffhanger, or they nail something, then I, I can imagine just ah, six more, the, six more episodes. The, the, Let's just go. The bald, muscular industrialist is about to save the day. <laughs> uh, well, uh, the one of the theories that was proposed in the Cord Killers audience was. Maybe like this takes you, I believe, up through book six ish or something, if I remember correctly. But then the suggestion was, well, maybe they wrap up the TV show and then we get a trilogy of movies afterwards. I, I, I believe that this is going to go on for as long that I, I can't remember a show that is more protected than the expanse is right now <laughs> considering <laughs> where the world of streaming is how rich jeff bezos is yeah. none of these things have done anything but become bigger and 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 more powerful uh, I, I wouldn't be shocked if considering that prime is now a more mature platform that you have all these uh, uh viewers that love the boys which is not a dissimilar demographic that we could see the expanse just hit a new pop culture kind of threshold uh, 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 with this season. Not since Ice Station Zero played round the clock on a Las Vegas television network yes. station for Howard Hughes. Uh, that's a, that was his favorite show. He bought the local Vegas TV station and just had them play it a lot. Oh, that's amazing. Because I yeah didn't want to get a VCR. Back One then. of the last times I was in Vegas, or maybe I heard it from you, Andrew, just through, through all of our, our Vegas connections, uh, uh, there are old timers who do swear that they were watching television and then the movie rewound or like stopped and went back <laughs> because uh, uh, Howard Hughes, who owned the station, called and, be like, and was like, no, play that again, and because he owns it. It was just basically everybody was watching his I DCR. never heard that. It wouldn't surprise me. I've, yeah, there, I've, I've there, heard, yeah, heard legend. There is a book to be written on the crazy kind of eccentrics, and it kind of started with Hughes, but, you know, there are other people there, like, there's one person I won't say, but like their phone number is so funny and unique when you hear it. And it's the only thing like a really rich person who could call up the local telephone company and say, I want you to do this. And they're like, yes, sir, yeah. mister, we'll make this thing happen. A lot of things like that. It's its own crazy little place. Is it 
<laughs> Jenny? Uh, no, 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 no. It was, uh, 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 that's uh, on a calculator. It says boobless. Mm, oh, nice. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I, I would, I would say, uh, uh, the expanse, Brian, you should, so what you, you, you tapped out, uh, halfway through that, the weird pocket, uh, uh, they were all stuck in, in, in the, in the universe pocket. Uh, no, I don't even think I made it there. Uh, I think I, I was that far either. Spoiler alert. Uh, I think it was the part that, um, uh, 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 man, um, I, it got, stop me if, if, if this is the entire series, but like it got real tedious and political and then I fell asleep. And then well, when I woke up, my wife was three episodes ahead and I never got caught. <laughs> uh, well, that's funny. Cause I, I think the show is kind of at its best when it is like at its high tension political stuff where it's like we're talking about the the game of thrones conflicts but instead of like the riverlands we're talking about you know the belt or mars or earth or whatever um there's yeah look there there's stops and starts I, I think the show is is unique in that it's gone in a few very interesting directions that aren't necessarily congruous with like the whole it feels at times a little disjointed in in the directions that it goes but at the same time uh, it's the only game in town selling BSG heroin right now. Like, you know, if you remember that time that you were really into BSG heroin, doesn't matter. It ain't the exact same thing, but boy, if you want a bunch of people making decisions on a ship that you believe in, in the stakes, uh, that's it. So I, uh, started a new audiobook, new, new jam dropped from, uh, one of my favorite uh, Stoic authors, Gary John Bishop, the guy who wrote uh, "On F Word Yourself," uh, that I liked very, very much. I probably owe that a re-listen. Um, but man, he's just got this great, uh, uh, direct, simple Scottish uh, accent as he reads his stories. Uh, and his new book is uh, is wise as F word, and uh, I like it quite a bit. It's um, he he really encourages you to take your time. He said. Um, uh, look, it's a short book, so I'm going to need you to read this real slow. Uh, press pause. Think about it. Walk around a bit. Uh, really let these ideas sit with you. If you uh, because uh, and he makes it very clear, all this could blow right past you, and you'll get nothing out of it. And that would be a dumb waste of both of our times. Uh, I like it a lot. I would say that something I was disappointed that we haven't seen more of is the shorter book. Uh, you know, kind of, there is such a value to here's 120 pages on a thing enough to do deep into it enough to get this point across. How many times have we read books? You're like, ah, you've made your point, but now you're stretching it out because your publisher wanted 300 words to sell a hardcover. And you know, people, you look at like on average, like some of the most popular books, people only read like 20 or 30% of them and whatnot, because often you get a feel for it, but also, I don't know. I just, I want short books. I want more shorter books. <laughs> I think, I think what, if if Andrew were president of the uh, books, uh, he would put forth a, a edict that said, you know, uh, no, unless your biography very specifically like pushes forward either your point or anything, we don't need to hear about the first time your dad bought a television. <laughs> like that's literally just filler to to inflate the page count. I'm I'm okay with that. I, when I, I like, but like when I listen to a biography and like 
His great-great-grandfather settled in the Mississippi Valley, you know, selling orange seeds. Unfortunately, they wouldn't grow. But when he went up north, and you're like, holy, I don't think this has any effect on this person at all. I think you no. went to a genealogy place, and you, you, you want us to hear all your homework. Um, I, I read I read one Barry Goldwater book for the second season of Raise the Dead that literally went back five generations and spent a significant amount of time on the life of each of the five generations of the Goldwaters that eventually settled in America. And it's like, you really could have boiled it all down to, he had a frontier spirit. <laughs> like that, that would have, it would have pretty much gotten you 99% of the way there with a 99% less words. Yeah. I mean, there's Disney one. They talked a bit about his father going to the World's Fair or whatever, or working there, telling him about. I'm like, okay, I can see how some of the stories there, but like when they get into like the great, you know, early, early family history, like I think there's a lot happened in his life that we could go into that's maybe harder to find out when take interviews, but you know. uh, I got, I got Who's a next. Uh, I've got a pick. I, I watched this uh, uh, right before, right before the show today, uh, and it was a very sweet little little film. Uh, it's on Hulu. Uh, it's called Happiest Season. Uh, you might have heard a little, little something about this. This is the big, uh, this is the, it's all the rage on Twitter, right? Yeah, this is the uh, uh, the uh, the holiday uh, kind of rom-com uh, uh, family film uh, about, uh, about uh, two lesbians who go to one of their family's uh, homes for Christmas. And uh, turns out she's actually not out to her parents and it is a whole, you know, it, it's kind of everything you would expect uh, from that premise. Uh, but it's very, but it's very sweet. It's really well, uh, 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 well directed, well written. Uh, a lot of, a lot of recognizable faces in the cast. Uh, Kristen Stewart and Mackenzie Davis. Mackenzie Davis, you might know from uh, Halt and Catch Fire, are kind of the lead actresses in it. Alice and Brie is great. Aubrey, Aubrey Plaza. Uh, has a good uh, uh, supporting part in it. Uh, uh, Dan Levy as the kind of uh, best friend on the phone, uh, uh, a town away, is just fantastic. It's great. It, I, I I don't want to uh, over overhype it uh, because I, I don't think it's <laughs> even worth that. But as far as like a a sweet Christmas movie and one that tells a story about uh, 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 you know uh, two lesbians, uh, I think I think it's really uh, uh, really good and really really kind of heartwarming. So. And uh, co-written and directed by Clea Duvall, who she's had an amazing career as an actress. And yeah. so I think that's awesome, you know, just to see, you know, a talented person. Yeah, exactly. So uh, Happiest Season on Hulu. I dig it. Andrew? Cool. My pick is uh, I watched last night, I watched Mank, which is the David Fincher movie about... Uh, Herman Mankiewicz, who is a prolific Hollywood screenwriter, was the writer, sort of co-writer of Citizen Kane, depending upon who you ask, you know, how much did you know Orson Welles contribute to the actual writing or not. And Gary Oldman plays Mankiewicz in it, and uh, Gary Oldman is phenomenal. It is told, and you know, it's done in a black and white style. It's a very neat. Uh, I enjoyed it. Like I'm a big, I'm a big fan of Citizen Kane. I think that it's one of these things. It's just this kind of you know really amazing sort of movie because you sit back not just visually but the way it was done structurally etc and i believe this script for this was written by his by fincher's father jack fincher no kidding. which is kind of awesome yeah. 
So this yeah. seems like it's the like uh, in in a bizarre award season year. This this would be the leader in the clubhouse for award season, right? Like Fincher, big name director. It's very artistic. It's about Hollywood, which Hollywood loves to celebrate. Yeah. Um, uh, like it w- would you be surprised andrew if this is on on whatever zoom call they're going to call the oscars this year uh, uh that this cleans up well i mean anytime you put the writer at the virtuous center of hollywood certainly yes <laughs> uh, that, that's you know the wga is going to be up on it the dga might be we don't know like but uh i i i think that it the more you understand the, the the more one you want to watch Citizen Kane before watching this, so you know what the movie's about. And two, the more you've heard about the kind of the history of that, um, that I think that the there's a lot of little inside sort of stuff just helped out a lot by understanding that story, which I think most Hollywood insiders, of course, know. But uh, Oldman is fantastic. Oldman's just I'm always you know to say oh Gary Oldman was great in this is just. Is what? Is, yeah, is, is to repeat yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Has he ever gotten all the best actor? Has he ever gotten best actor? Um, Gary Oldman, because I feel like he's. Uh oh, wait, no, he won for Winston Churchill, for Darkest yeah. Hour. Nice. Yeah, you would think that he's a guy that should have got that way sooner. He's just amazing. Uh, but yeah, anyhow, um, so I, I recommend it. And then I would say for fun, go on YouTube and just Google interviews with Orson Welles. Um, <laughs> I, I, he is an amazing storyteller and he's often as self-promoting as he was larger than life. He was, he was also a person who had this inner sort of this endearing sort of self-criticism to himself too, you know? And I sent, I sent, I was doing some research because there's a story he told tells about being a kid and meeting Hitler. And their question is, <laughs> did it or did not, did it ever? And it's hard to find out if it did or didn't. Because when he was young, when Orson Welles was young, his, his, his dad had a lot of money, but then his family or his, his dad had money, but then his mother died and his dad became an alcoholic. And it's sort of, by the time he was 16, he just got up and let, went off to Ireland by himself and rode a donkey cart around and then got into theater. But when he was early childhood, he had a very interesting early childhood. And so it's hard to know with him. He's got a great story. He tells about uh, trying to raise money at... Uh, uh, you know, going to, you know, one of the, the big European film festivals and he's trying to raise money. And he had met, he says that he'd met Winston Churchill years earlier where Churchill came to see one of his plays and knew all the lines, etc. And then he's, Orson Welles says he's walking through this dining room with this Russian financier to, you know, to get money from. And Churchill nods to Orson Welles and the financier was so impressed that he gave Welles the funding. And then the next day, Wells says he ran into Churchill at the beach and said, listen, I owe you a debt of gratitude. You helped finance my movie. Thank you so much. And he said, later that night, I'm walking through the dining room with another financier and Churchill sees me and he stands up and he bows. (laughs) 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 True. I don't know, but I pulled up this article trying to figure it out. I found this article from the New Yorker in 1938 talking about Orson Welles. Okay. And I said, wow. I said this to Justin cause I'm like, I, yeah, I, I've this not read is, it, yet. it is worth it when you have the time to just sit back and read this thing, because understand that 
Orson Welles was 23, 22, 23. And they're talking about the opening of one of his latest plays. You know, this this 23-year-old man, the opening of one of his biggest plays, and it's great and whatnot. And one of the biggest things reporters tried to do back then is they would kept calling. He was born in Kenosha, Wisconsin, is they would call the hospitals and stuff. And they were always trying to get a hold of birth certificates because they were convinced that he had to be in his 30s or 40s. Nobody could believe that this guy who emerged onto the stage at you know 2021 20, as a producer, director, actor was so talented. And kind of hard to live that down later on. Yeah, I mean, yes, yeah, so. such, such an icon. Obviously, a bit of a a a troubled uh, troubled existence in his in his later life, as he you know kind of was the, the definition of not being able to get out of his own way. But uh, yeah, uh, yeah, icon Orson Welles. Yeah, so I think Mank's an interesting part, a different point of view of the story, and sort of emphasizes Mankiewicz's contributions to that movie. And it goes back to because Mankiewicz, as this is told, knew uh, Hearst. Uh, new uh, Marion Davies, new, you know, that that world and sort of that was where that kind of aspect of the Sison Kane thing came from and whatnot. And so uh, well worth watching. I'm pumped. Cool. Right on. Gentlemen, it's been weird. Weird fluid. Weird, dark, dark, <laughs> weird fluid. Matter. Weird, I'm weird, weird energy. Weird times. The Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>